This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to World Shared Practices Forum. Today we're going to be discussing tight glycemic control. With us today is Dr. Michael Agus, who is the chief of the Medicine Critical Care Program at Boston Children's Hospital and associate professor at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Agus is the principal investigator and first author on a recent report in the New England Journal examining the role of tight glycemic control in the pediatric cardiac intensive care unit environment. Dr. Agus, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. I wonder if I could begin by asking a question of our colleagues um, in the audience. Could you leave a comment and tell us uh, which city your pediatric intensive care unit is in? And could you tell us if any time in the last decade your PICU had a formal or an informal guideline on tight glycemic control in the care of a uh, critically ill child, whether it's a child with sepsis or a child after cardiac surgery. Later in the program, we'll be asking what your current practice is, but I wonder now if you could leave a comment, as I said, if in the last 10 years your program had um, a protocol for tight glycemic control at some point. We're back, uh, Dr. Agus. I wonder if we could begin by, um, if you could explain the biologic rationale for tight glycemic control. Um, obviously, the audience is well aware of the long history of glucose, insulin, potassium infusions in critical illness and the studies that have been going on for 50 years in that realm. Uh, but could you take us through the biologic rationale? Is, is it the avoidance of hyperglycemia or is it the introduction of insulin? Um, could we hear about that and, and what motivated um, you for this study? You're right to say uh, that uh, glucose, insulin, potassium infusion or GIK infusion has been around for a long time. In fact, starting in the 1960s, uh, the uh, medical cardiology population began to treat their post-myocardial infarction patients uh, with the GIK infusion to try to determine if there were uh, uh, improved recovery times and improved uh, function after that event. Uh, by the 1970s, the practice had shifted to cardiac surgery and uh, had been uh, published multiple uh, times in lots of different studies. But the interesting thing about the field is that uh, each study was a little bit different in terms of how they defined their population, what dose they used, how they performed the, the protocol. Uh, and really going into the 80s and 90s, uh, there was no clear uh, decision that all clinicians in the field had, had come to about whether this practice was worthwhile. In the late 90s, there was a single review that looked like there was a, a benefit, and a couple years later, there was an equally uh, prominent review uh, or meta-analysis of the literature that suggested that it, it had no benefits at all. Uh, that really, I think, laid the uh, backdrop of the use of insulin in uh, a sick population. Now, uh, the uh, benefits that uh, the groups were able to see uh, when, when there were benefits uh, were uh, published in, in, in uh, again, various uh, different formats, but they certainly included membrane stabilization, antiarrhythmic effects, improved myocardial glycogen content, uh, post-operative insulin resistance when they moved into the cardiac surgical field, 
reduction of circulating free fatty acid levels, which uh, are known to have some degree of toxicity uh, to the cardiac myocyte, improved glucose utilization, and then there were other uh, benefits uh, that seemed to be present in terms of improved cardiac index, improved uh, immune function. Um, the, uh, the, the taking a step back, the uh, in vitro or, or uh, non-clinical studies that looked at the benefits of uh, insulin or the harm of hyperglycemia um, have also uh, been very uh, different and, and varied over the years. Uh, the, the bulk of the immune benefits uh, were shown in uh, in vitro studies or in uh, animal studies, uh, but all of the uh, uh, all of the learnings that we've had over the years that that remind us that hyperglycemia uh, harms uh, uh, neutrophil function, uh, phagocytosis, uh, results in increased cytokine expression. Uh, basically, all of those in vitro studies were done at very high glucose concentrations, which, which made sense. The, the question was always, is a glucose of 300, 400, 500 milligrams per deciliter harmful? And, and in what ways did it, does it exert that negative effect? Uh, by the same token, uh, insulin uh, has been shown in, in various situations to have profound anti-inflammatory effects. And so the, both the harm of hyperglycemia and the benefits of uh, hyperinsulinemia uh, have been well established what uh, nobody had really gotten to yet going into uh, the, the turn of the millennium uh, was uh, are there differences within the physiologic range where patients really live? Is there a difference between 80, 110, 150, 180? That had not been established at all. What had been established is that very high blood sugars were associated with all sorts of uh, in vitro damage. Uh, and in fact, retrospectively, uh, in worse patient outcomes. Uh, but uh, the, the uh, clear definition of where to target within a particular population um, had, uh, had not uh, been well established. With that as the backdrop, could we turn to the Vandenberg study in uh, 2001? Um, adult study, uh, our audience is well familiar with it, but uh, the hypothesis clearly turned at that point, and uh, we've been investigating it ever since. Could you take us through, um, take us through the meaning of that study um, and how thinking about tight glycemic control evolved? It was a very interesting time uh, in, when the study came out in 2001, uh, but what's fascinating is that there were a couple key studies that came out just beforehand. Uh, and in 1995, uh, in particular, was a study called Degami. Uh, diabetes, insulin, and glucose after myocardial infarction, which uh, kind of uh, was naturally led to by the history of GIK infusions. Uh, what they did is, is took uh, a group of several hundred adults after myocardial infarction and tightly controlled their blood sugar just for the period of inpatient hospitalization, which was uh, roughly a couple of days. Uh, with only a couple of days of uh, uh, glucose control, however, one year later, there was a 29% reduction in mortality in the group that had uh, tight glucose control. There was uh, some emphasis placed on outpatient management after the inpatient uh, insulin infusion, but, but uh, by all accounts, it was very minimal. Uh, and really, it's this two-day period of tight glucose control that resulted in an incredible mortality benefit a year later. Um, 
that was really the, the end of the, the GIK era and moving into uh, targeted glucose control where you actually brought the glucose into the physiologic range. Now, Greet Vandenberg followed, uh, took the field really a step further uh, by designing a trial that at its outset actually was not a glucose control trial. Interestingly, she's an endocrinologist uh, and intensivist as well uh, and uh, identified uh, IGF-BP1, insulin-like growth factor binding protein 1, uh, as a predictor of patients uh, who went on to uh, be non-survivors in the ICU. Uh, if IGF-BP1 was elevated, that uh, gave you a, a significant increase in mortality risk during your subsequent hospitalization. Uh, IGF-BP1 is constitutively produced by the liver and suppressed by insulin effect. And so Dr. Vandenberg uh, sought to design a trial to reduce IGF-BP1 and thereby confer uh, survival benefit to the patients in the trial. The way to do that is with insulin and the way that to do it uh, responsibly and, and in, with uh, uh, very uh, clear uh, parameters is with a tight glucose control regimen. And so that's how th this study was actually designed, not, not primarily for glucose control, but for IGF-BP1 uh, suppression. The trial was incredibly successful in terms of uh, demonstrating a reduction in mortality. It's true that the bulk of those uh, were surgical patients and the bulk of the surgical were cardiac surgical and the bulk of the, those who got benefit were exposed to therapy for an extended period of time. Those are all important lessons for subsequent trials that were to be defined. As a, a postscript, the IGF-BP1 uh, was actually not suppressed in survivors uh, as had been hypothesized. Uh, but we certainly ended up with uh, uh, very impressive findings uh, with tight glucose control. Uh, a, a bit less formal of a study was underway at the same time by a, a cardiac surgeon named Tony Fernari uh, who noticed that uh, his uh, diabetes patients uh, had a, a doubling of mortality compared to his non-diabetes patients for the same operation, same operator. Uh, and he uh, simply uh, came to the conclusion that they needed to have glucose better controlled and began to do so. Uh, and so in a cohort uh, kind of a way, uh, demonstrated a reduction in mortality in his own patients over the course of a decade uh, by 50%. Uh, these two studies really stood out as the uh, uh, turning the tide uh, among intensivists who, uh, in my opinion, always felt a little bit guilty for allowing uh, biochemical parameter to drift completely out of range during the critical illness course. And as long as uh, that wasn't harming the patient, people let it go. But once it became clear that controlling it uh, potentially conferred significant benefit, really the entire world uh, jumped on that bandwagon. Uh, and in my own uh, uh, institution at the time I was training at Mass General, uh, we considered repeating the trial initially in adults just to uh, confirm that there was such dramatic benefit. Uh, but by the time the trial got fully designed, uh, even at, uh, at that uh, hospital, uh, tight glucose control had essentially been adopted, uh, if only informally, eventually formally uh, by that and, and the majority of uh, adult units around this country and I suspect around the world. Well, I wonder if we could pause at this point and um, ask our colleagues around the world, uh, could you first tell us what uh, city and country you're in? And secondly, um, could you tell us, did your PICU program uh, change practice in response to the Vandenberg study in 2001? 
Uh, and in particular, did you ad adopt a tight glycemic control protocol formally or informally in the care of critically ill children in response to that study? We're back now. Um, Michael, one of the questions I know all of us struggle with, um, and I suspect many around the world are interested to hear your thoughts. How do you think about um, these uh, seemingly promising um, results in adult trials, which of course do not reflect our population? And in particular, the Vanderburg study, some of her uh, positive findings and outcomes, such as um, an improvement in red blood cell transfusions, et cetera, the biologic rationale for how that might occur was not straightforward to many of us and therefore should we extrapolate those results into the pediatric patient? How did you wrestle with that? Yeah, it's a great question and it was very difficult at the time because living in an institution where we did both pediatrics and adults, it, it was in some ways hard to see the adults uh, take these results and fly with them. Uh, and then to look back in our own pediatric unit and try to decide, well, are we going to um, allow our patients to benefit from uh, what has become worldwide wisdom, or are we going to uh, kind of be conservative and hold back? And very quickly, personally, I came to the decision that, that we had an obligation to hold back. Uh, the uh, biologic plausibility of uh, treating hyperglycemia made some sense, but as you pointed out, the benefits were far and wide. Uh, glucose control, reduced ICU time, reduced ventilator time, reduced uh, uh, blood transfusions, uh, dialysis-dependent renal failure, reduced uh, bloodstream infections by 50%, deep sternal wound infections by 50%. Uh, there were extraordinary benefits that, that did not follow directly from uh, the physiology of controlling glucose nor uh, providing additional insulin therapy. Uh, I also uh, looked very uh, closely at the hypoglycemia rate, in particular the severe hypoglycemia rate, the blood sugar is less than 40 milligrams per deciliter uh, in the adult cohort. Uh, and in Vandenberg's initial study, the, the frequency of blood glucose checking uh, wasn't clearly defined, but it, it, uh, it wasn't uh, as frequent as uh, we do in pediatrics when we infuse uh, intravenous insulin uh, by standard practice. Uh, and so I became very nervous about implementing this kind of protocol without very clear uh, data. Uh, and in order to uh, try to get that data as safely as possible, uh, I became very interested in continuous glucose monitoring in, in uh, minimally invasive or uh, someday hopefully non-invasive techniques uh, in order to enable the delivery of this potentially very harmful therapy uh, as safely as possible so that we could really ask the question in a safe fashion. So could I ask, um, you as an investigator, um, was it a stepwise approach and you were first interested in the problem of um, glucose monitoring and conquering that, or did you see that as just one step on what you knew then would be um, a multicenter trial to examine tight glycemic control? How did that fit into your personal um, um, development? So at the time that the Vandenberg trial came out, actually I was already uh, investigating the effects of high-dose insulin on uh, reducing protein breakdown in babies supported with uh, ECMO or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. Uh, and so I was already very interested in the 
ability of insulin to improve some of the uh, biochemical parameters in critically ill children that, that were known to go awry. When uh, Vandenberg's uh, tight glucose control trial was published in 2001, uh, my immediate goal was to uh, set up a safe structure so that I could uh, repeat that trial in a pediatric population. We always say that children are not simply little adults. Uh, and so I knew that if we were going to institute this therapy in a uh, responsible, uh, thoughtful, and knowledgeable fashion, we would have to gather our own data in our own population and that we needed uh, tools uh, built and tested in order to do that safely. What was the interval between um, studying uh, glucose monitoring and then finally initiating the trial? Uh, there was a five-year interval uh, from when uh, uh, I had already been uh, underway with insulin uh, uh, experimentation in the pediatric ICU uh, until we uh, initiated the cardiac trial. And how many months did the trial take? Uh, it was five years in total. So it was a 10-year interval to uh, conduct one study uh, in a way that you thought was safe and, uh, and rigorous. Um, Dr. Agus, um, as you well know, um, the uh, number of studies uh, in the adult literature and, and then in the pediatric literature leading up to your study led to some conflicting findings. And um, the purpose of our talk today is to not have you do an exhaustive review of all the studies prior to your publication in 2012, but could you speak to us just briefly about the pediatric studies in tight glycemic control prior to your 2012 study? and um, what the signals may have been implying uh, about this as an intervention in our population. Yeah, well, you know, there, there was uh, quite a number of studies, uh, retrospective uh, looks at uh, the association of hyperglycemia with poor outcome, uh, both in uh, pediatric ICU, pediatric cardiac uh, ICU, uh, and the, uh, the association between those two findings, uh, I think, was sound. What's really important, obviously, uh, is to uh, look at the randomized controlled interventions to see uh, what benefit there could possibly be. And uh, at the time we started our trial, uh, there had been no prospective trials published. Uh, but about midway during our trial, one uh, really uh, well-designed and, and significant trial uh, led by Dirk Vlasler's uh, was published in The Lancet in 2009. Uh, 700 patients. Uh, who were uh, a mix of cardiac uh, and non-cardiac uh, in the ICU, uh, um, but with a very interesting uh, twist that uh, we wouldn't replicate in the United States, uh, which is that in their uh, patient population that was below one year of age, they randomized them to uh, a blood glucose of 50 to 80 milligrams per deciliter. Uh, in those above one, the range, the target range in the uh, a strict control arm was 70 to 100, and in the conventional therapy, they just kept the blood sugars less than 200 milligrams per deciliter. Uh, this trial uh, did produce some very significant results, uh, similar to uh, Vandenberg's, in particular, reduction in mortality uh, from 5.1 to 2.3 percent, uh, and a reduction in nosocomial infections from 37 to 29 percent. These were really remarkable improvements in clinical outcome. Uh, based on this uh, tight glucose control intervention. Uh, and mid, uh, uh, midway through our trial, it really made us 
uh, stop and think about what sort of intervention we were uh, engaging in. Uh, when we looked at the severe hypoglycemia rate, however, uh, we saw that uh, in the Vlasler's trial there was a 25% severe hypoglycemia rate across all uh, intervention patients compared to what we ended up with, which was a 3% severe hypoglycemia rate. Now, uh, they have since gone on uh, to show that the uh, uh, four-year follow-up uh, uh, IQ uh, was not harmed to the extent that they could measure it, uh, uh, arguing that this very high rate of severe hypoglycemia did not produce any uh, neurocognitive harm. Uh, still, uh, given what we know about hypoglycemia and the uh, damage uh, that it will ultimately do to the uh, CNS, um, this is not a, a trial that closed the book uh, uh, for us uh, in, the, uh, in the pediatric world. We couldn't apply uh, such a uh, low glucose target range to our population uh, and feel that uh, that was a, a safe way to proceed. Uh, and so we felt like we had to complete our trial and really understand whether there uh, was benefit in the 80 to 110 uh, range, given that we were able to keep uh, hypoglycemia at a much lower rate. So Dr. Agus, with that as a background, what was the conceptual foundation of choosing the pediatric cardiac ICU population for your study? And as you designed the study, in your mind, what was the biologic plausibility rationale for tight glycemic control in improving outcomes for critically ill children in the cardiac ICU? And secondly, a year later now, we're almost 12 months since your publication in the New England Journal, in your view now, what are the salient findings of your study? What's the insider's view of your study? Well, uh, the, the, the trial design was really uh, based on getting the biggest bang for our buck. Um, I, I, at the outset, did not imagine doing multiple tight glucose control trials. In my career, I thought I would do one, uh, and I wanted to make it count. Um, the uh, uh, adult uh, population, uh, the adult studies have taught us that uh, if there is going to be benefit that benefit will be most obvious in the cardiac surgical population. Uh, and uh, that led us to look at the pediatric cardiac ICU uh, as a possible uh, place to conduct the trial. Uh, when we began looking for hyperglycemia in the cardiac ICU, it was everywhere. 90% of uh, patients had at least one blood sugar over the normal range uh, when we looked uh, back over a year. Uh, when uh, we looked at uh, what our primary outcome would be, well, uh, mortality, uh, thankfully, is uh, a very difficult primary outcome in virtually any pediatric study, certainly pediatric uh, uh, cardiac ICU, uh, with a 1% baseline mortality, uh, the numbers we would have needed to affect mortality would have been uh, massive. Uh, and so we sought a surrogate outcome. Now, uh, interestingly, in the Vlasler's trial, uh, that trial was powered on a change of C-reactive protein from baseline. Uh, and, and actually, that was one of the outcomes, is that it, insulin therapy did reduce C-reactive protein. Uh, for our trial, we, we sought a surrogate outcome that uh, brought us a little bit closer to the patient and to clinical outcomes in the unit. Uh, uh, Nosecomy or hospital-acquired infections uh, were and continue to be a significant problem that adds 
uh, morbidity uh, and uh, occasionally mortality to uh, this population. Uh, and uh, the highest rates that we could find were in the uh, population less than three years of age in our cardiac ICU. And, and that really formed the basis of our population. Uh, it, it was a homogeneous population, uh, although they received all sorts of different uh, surgical corrective procedures. Uh, there was a, a knowable list. Uh, they all came in relatively stable, the majority of them. Uh, and uh, they, uh, the post-operative care they received was very similar, even across the two sites. And, and retrospectively, we've uh, validated that. Uh, we uh, uh, were able to uh, uh, enroll them uh, in a calm situation before they had their uh, procedures, uh, and uh, we randomized them in the operating room and brought them back to the, uh, the ICU and initiated therapy. Um, uh, infection itself has been shown in virtually every uh, a clinical trial uh, to be uh, positively uh, affected by uh, tight glucose control. And so it seemed a very plausible outcome and a very relevant outcome uh, in a uh, relatively homogeneous but uh, sick population. Uh, in terms of the conduct of the trial, uh, we were very pleased that in the tight glucose control arm, 91% uh, of the patients got insulin, whereas in the standard care arm, where we didn't restrict access to insulin, only 2% of the patients got insulin. So we believe that they really did get a standard uh, pre-study care. Uh, we were surprised that the duration of insulin therapy was only two days. And, and, and therein may lie a really important uh, difference uh, and way to think about uh, which population ought to be studied next and which population might benefit most. Uh, if you're a fairly short course in the ICU, uh, based on Vandenberg's data and to some extent um, Vlasler's data, uh, two days may just not be enough uh, for you to uh, get enough benefit from tight glucose control. Uh, we had very good adherence to our protocol recommendations. The nurses accepted uh, over 98% of the recommendations made by our computer-based algorithm. Uh, and uh, we got significant uh, differences in the time within range, was 50% uh, compared to 33%. Uh, and in the time-weighted blood glucose average was statistically uh, different, 112 versus 121. But surprisingly, the uh, uncontrolled group, the 121, really wasn't as high. Uh, as we had uh, expected. The severe hypoglycemia rate, as I mentioned, less than 40 milligrams per deciliter, was uh, the lowest uh, accomplished in, in any uh, prospective trial to date. So we were very pleased uh, that it was low. Uh, we'd be even more pleased if it were lower. Uh, you, you can see from uh, the glucose traces uh, of the uh, tight glucose control group in red compared to the standard care arm in blue, uh, that uh, they came within range uh, fairly quickly within a few hours uh, and the uh, TGC arm stayed within range for the duration of the ICU but without any therapy uh, the standard care arm really got to uh, within the target range by 48 hours uh, at the latest and, and that uh, is I think a very important um, finding in this population. In terms of outcomes uh, this was a negative trial when you look at all uh, patients and in the intent-to-treat analysis, uh, we had no reduction in 30-day uh, rate of healthcare-associated infections. Uh, the, we looked at it as number of infections per 1,000 ICU days, and uh, there was no difference. We also had no difference in 30-day mortality uh, or in ICU length of stay, hospital length of stay, 
and no difference in uh, duration of mechanical ventilation. We looked at all sorts of other parameters, looking at organ function and uh, uh, across uh, the uh, body and did not uh, see any benefits. Um, there are some uh, post hoc subgroup analyses that are underway which do look promising, uh, but taken as a group, the intent to treat, this was a negative trial. The take home messages uh, uh, in my mind from, from our trial uh, are that, uh, again, on the whole, cardiac surgical patients less than three years of age do not benefit uh, from uh, having their glucose brought down to the 80 to 110 range uh, compared to no insulin therapy. Uh, one very important take home, however, for subsequent work in the field is that we can achieve a glucose target range of 80 to 110 uh, very safely with a very low rate of severe hypoglycemia. Uh, despite uh, the uh, lack of IQ effect several years out after the trial uh, in Vlasler's trial, I still think as clinicians this is something we want and as uh, it's something we owe our patients to reduce that risk uh, to as low as humanly possible. Uh, I think we've also um, uh, demonstrated that for a successful trial, uh, a protocol needs to be replicable. It needs to be exportable to multiple sites, uh, and these, the endpoints uh, uh, in the trial need to be well-defined. In our trial, we had a blinded adjudication committee uh, to decide whether e uh, each uh, event really was an infection in a, a, any given child and this uh, blindedness and objectivity in making the determination for the primary endpoint I think is a key distinguishing feature of this trial. Uh, my take home point personally as a clinical uh, trialist is that with different populations one gets different pathophysiology and a uh, positive result in one population simply cannot be assumed uh, to be replicated in a subsequent population. Uh, I think when we've gotten to this stage of the science, we need to uh, do our further research in humans, in clinical trials, uh, with tightly uh, defined protocols and tightly uh, uh, defined outcomes. Um, Dr. Agus, I wonder if I could ask you to comment now. Um, the most recent guidelines uh, presented in uh, December 2012, um, uh, which I believe you were uh, part of the authors of an expert consensus guideline from the Society of Critical Care Medicine uh, directing us to do what now based on um, the expert findings? Yeah, so we, the bulk of the guidelines was addressing uh, adult critical care, uh, which recommended a, a target range of 140 to 180 milligrams per deciliter uh, based on uh, a consideration of all of the trials to date, which in adults are, are fairly numerous and in particular include uh, the nice sugar trial. Uh, in pediatrics, uh, we were a, a little less definitive about uh, a, a target range, uh, but we agreed with our adult colleagues that it probably makes sense based on uh, the uh, uh, totality of the data across humans uh, that uh, we begin to keep blood sugar less than 180 uh, during a critical illness. Um, this uh, uh, shouldn't expose patients to a significant risk. Uh, by targeting the upper end of that, uh, but it, uh, we wanted to make sure not to invalidate uh, those that uh, e have uh, adopted adult uh, guidelines uh, and believe that they've uh, demonstrated benefit, uh, given that we've not yet completed work in the non-cardiac population. 
I wonder if I could turn to our colleagues around the world now and ask, um, in your uh, practice now, could you tell us what city and country you're located in? And does your pediatric intensive care unit, uh, have you modified your approach to tight glycemic control as a result of Dr. Agus's study or other studies that have emerged in the last several years? Um, and in particular, um, do you practice tight glycemic control? Um, and if so, what target range? Um, or if you do not, if you could let us, um, let us know, uh, is that only in the pediatric cardiac intensive care population that you do not practice tight glycemic control? Or do you not practice tight glycemic control in any population in your pediatric intensive care unit? We're back now, uh, Michael, in our last remaining minutes. Um, where are you now on, on your thoughts about this? And as you know, the accompanying editorial uh, by our colleague Brian Cavanaugh in Canada uh, was very thoughtful and rightfully pointed out that, as you said, the preponderance of human data and the biologic plausibility is pointing against tight glycemic control. And nevertheless, Brian said that there, there may still be room to, um, to study this. Um, in your view, um, is, the story, is the story over on tight glycemic control, or should we be testing it in yet another population in the critically ill child? I think we have an obligation to test our therapies before we apply them. And I, I think that uh, as conflicting uh, as the data is in the adult population, it remains largely absent. Uh, and scant at best in the pediatric population. Uh, I think that uh, Vlasler has made a, a very significant contribution. Uh, we've tried to make a contribution. Uh, the uh, CHIP uh, trial in uh, Europe has, uh, is in the process of making their significant uh, contribution. Uh, but I think until we amass enough data in specific populations uh, that it is not uh, a responsible uh, approach to uh, adopt a uh, low and tight uh, glucose range in all pediatric ICU populations. I think we have to be very careful. Uh, in my own practice, uh, I have begun to identify uh, critically ill patients whose blood sugar is over 200 milligrams, milligrams per deciliter uh, sustained. Uh, and I've begun to uh, start uh, an insulin infusion to bring them down into the uh, 150 to 180 range. Uh, but outside of a clinical trial, uh, I would uh, not personally uh, bring patients uh, below that range. So to be clear, in your practice, uh, you're adhering to the expert guidelines that were published in December 2012 from the Society of Critical Care Medicine, uh, which as you noted is to keep blood glucose in the range of 150 to 180 milligrams per deciliter. Very right. good. Thank you very much, Dr. Agus, for joining us on World Shared Practices Forum. Um, leave your comments for Dr. Agus, um, and uh, we will arrange a separate session where Dr. Agus will respond to your comments. Um, and if you have uh, comments about World Shared Practices Forum and suggestions for future topics and speakers, um, please let us know, and thank you for participating. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.